0: If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter eight. Before we get started, where's my little Chinese Yao guy that over here? Yeah. We got him a we got him a Bible. Hold your Bible up. We got him a Bible. It's got Mandarin Chinese is what he speaks on one page and English on the other. So we got him a good Bible that he can have there. We love you. Good to have you here. Amen. We have learned from our study, as we entered into 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that there's two chapters that he set aside to deal with the attitude of heart of the minister. And we now know that the attitude of the heart of the minister needs to be one of giving. I I remember, and many of you will remember this with me, uh, uh, for years, uh, starting about 1976, 77, uh, I was... uh, uh, with a very, at that time, very famous pastor. I was a, I was a youth pastor myself and in, in church there. And and all of you old timers will remember, remember the stewardship banquets we used to have? Remember those? And uh, every year, uh, right about this time, right after the first of the year, they'd put a big push on for, for to raise the offerings. And they'd always have a stewardship banquet. And... Uh, it was a thing where we would start preparing for like two months ahead. And they would they would read, they would would write special lessons about giving and all of this stuff, you know. They'd pass out commitment cards. And then we'd have this great, great, great banquet. And everybody had to come and bring their commitment card and hold it up before the Lord, you know. And then they tallied it all up. And uh, then they were really disappointed because they never got as much as they thought they wanted to get. But anyway, uh, all the time that they... Bit those lessons together, and I'll never forget this. And I was just a young guy then, but I, 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 I would say I had a pretty good handle on some of the Bible at that point in my life. But they always use Second Corinthians chapter eight and nine uh, to beat the people up about giving money. And uh, I mean, they would do some horrendous things. It was incredible. It really put you put a people. It was all a guilt trip. What it was. And I, I, ne- I remember thinking back, and I thought back this week as I was putting this together, I remember looking at those lessons, and I, and I always just threw the lessons away and did my own. Uh, you know, I, I just I could get away with it. And I, I, I just could not understand why Second uh, Corinthians 8 and 9, the way they were portraying it, in reality has nothing to do with money. I mean, it has to do with giving, but it hasn't got hardly anything to do with money. They were forgetting the, what it really dealt with because their full focus was money. And so they were squeezing that thing to get every dime out of the people that they could. And I'll never forget looking at those passages and thinking to myself, this is totally ridiculous. There is nothing in here that's even about money. It's about the giving of your own self first. And that's like we approached it when we talked about it. And uh, last week we finished uh, the middle section on the second principle. We talked about God's will in your life versus God's plan for your life. Very vital in, in the two of the aspects, and there's three different aspects. We're going to look at the third one today. And uh, the first one was your attitude of heart in giving. That was our first week. Last week, we talked about, um, you know, God's will in your life versus uh, your will in your life. I explained to you the difference between God's will and God's plan, how that they're different, how that they're, you know, you really have to understand how important they really are. We based last week around 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. And you, say, you remember there that it talked about that you have to have a willing mind. And uh, we saw the great truth that if you are willing to do what God has called you to do, he'll give you everything you need to accomplish it. And that's really what we focused on last week. And I, gave, I remember I gave you uh, another great concept. In fact, I gave you this one first. It was in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. I'm telling you, one of the greatest verses in the Bible where it says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And we talked about the fact that God who had everything, who had all the riches of glory, God who had everything that the universe contained, gave it all up simply because he saw that your need and my need was greater than all he had. And that is the basis by which we as Christians minister for God. That is the basis by which we do everything we do for God. We look at all God has given us and all God has provided us and all God has laid at our feet. And then we we have a choice. We can either amass it around ourselves and, and enjoy what we have or we can see it that what God has provided for us Somebody's need is greater than all we have, and we, we take through our own free will when we choose to, to give back to God based on understanding the grace that God has done all the things that he's done for us. You know, in the Bible, and it's also true in life, but I find in the Bible there are some very defining principles in the Word of God who really define, that really define who we are. I mean, you've got great principles about life, marriage, training your children up and doing all the things, but there are some great principles in the Bible that simply define us of who we are. And this is one of them. This is one of them. These two here that we have talked about, uh, the willing mind, and then 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, uh, verse 9, they are the principles that define us understanding all that God had, yet he gave it all up because he simply saw that my need was greater than all that he had. I mean, you can blow off a lot of things, and a lot of God's people do. But I mean, for a Christian to see that and to hear that and to go on living their life doing what they want to do the way they want to do it and completely ignoring all that God has for them, uh, there's some serious issues, some serious flaws somewhere along the line. In, in what you've got with the Lord. On these two concepts, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and again, 2 Corinthians eight twelve, lies all that what we do, everything. I mean, we can take every aspect of the ministry and put it into these two chapters, but it boils down in these two chapters to these two concepts, giving back to God based on what he's given to you and recognizing that he gave up everything that he had because he, he, he deemed your need and my need greater. And then we're looking at people's lives and people, what they need, and we deem what their needs are greater than what we our needs are. You know, it's a willing mind based on understanding God's grace and then the concept of giving your own self first. These two verses form for us the great principles that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Now, today I, I want to read the rest of this chapter, and I want to talk about and focus on the third and final aspect of being of uh, the minister that God wants us to be with the heart that we should have. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 15 here, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Follow along with me if you will. And he says this, As it is written, He that hath gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed he accepted the exhortation, But being more forward, of his own accord, he went unto you. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us, with the grace which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and the declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in any abundance which is administered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now uh, much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you, or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and of the glory of Christ. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches, and the proof of your love, and of our boasting on your behalf. Now, Father, help us to take this last great principle that he, he lays out in this passage as he's dealing with this church, and Lord, help us to see it today. These are good people that many of them want to do what want you want them to do with their life, and they, they want to give you everything that, uh, Lord, uh, back that you've given them. And Lord, help us today. Help us to glean. Help us to grow. Thank you for those that have showed up today, our old friends that have made it back today. And Lord, we love them very much. And we, we know that they pray for us. And as we pray for them, and uh, Lord, we just pray that uh, someday, Lord, uh, uh, that we'll all be together in heaven, never have to say goodbye again. And we can just fellowship and be joyful around you and your throne and all that we do. But help us today to be found faithful in what we do. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in ending this chapter, uh, and I want get, to get this out of the way first, I want you to be able to put your notes in because I want you to understand how this chapter breaks down before we get to the principle. But in ending this chapter, Paul telling them that he's sending Titus and another brother. Now, it doesn't tell you who the brother is, but if anybody knows the Bible, it's probably without any doubt Silas. Silas went with Paul everywhere and did everything, and he certainly uh, was well known, and that's probably who it is even though it's not named there. And yet, there's a basic lesson here, and the basic lesson here is another principle for churches, and uh, it is to protect uh, the integrity of the ministry. And you know, he's saying here that uh, that when they collect up this money, to go to Jerusalem. That you got Paul, and then you got you got. Titus coming into the picture, and then you got Silas. And what he's doing here is he's taking three guys. Paul does not want to be responsible uh, and be the only one who has control of the money. He doesn't want somebody coming back and, and accusing him of doing anything wrong. So he follows a smart plan that every church ought to follow. And that is that he puts multiple people in charge of, of the finances that, uh, that those three guys are responsible. Paul watches, or uh, Silas watches Titus, Titus watches Silas, and Paul watches both of them. And all three of them together get the job done. Now, that is, the, that is the, a basic format. And so much of this that you find in here is just what you transpose out of what they're doing and you put into a church. It's true in our church. We have four or five people who oversee the basic offering that we take up every Sunday. <clears throat> Over and above that, there's what? I don't remember. 12, 13, 14, 15 guys who oversee the overall uh, financial structure of making any major decision. Those are the kind of things you've got to have in place to make sure that, uh, that nothing uh, gets, goes sideways or that everybody, uh, nobody can accuse you of anything. You remember a while back, and again, <clears throat> I've been in these situations with churches all my life. It was about, a, what was it, a year ago, two years ago, <clears throat> Jerry Johnson got himself in trouble over there in Kansas who had uh, uh, First Family or whatever it was. The fact that uh, he was called into question on some financial things that, of, of what he was doing and how he was doing it. And one of the things, and I, I, I follow along in the paper, and I know you don't get the whole story in the paper, but I follow along. I think one of the fatal flaws that he made, that any time somebody accuses you of something, and then you refuse to show them the books of whatever you got, you're in trouble. I mean, uh, if you got nothing to hide, then let them see it. And I've been in churches all my life where, you know, from going back to the 1977-76 stewardship deals where every, every twice a year, three times a year, they'd always put out a financial statement and give it to everybody. And I used to sit in those meetings and I used to watch those guys say, well, put that in, but don't put that in. Put this in, but don't put that in. I am giving you a piece of paper means absolutely nothing. When I started this church, I had a clear open to everybody and told them, if you are a tithing member of this church and you belong to this church and you tithe and support it with your tithes, offer sacrificial giving, you can see the books anytime you want to see them. All you got to do is make an appointment, go in, and whatever you want to see where your money goes, wherever it goes, however it goes, you're, you're, you're welcome to do that. You got to be transparent in everything that you do and the f- best way I know how to do it, I don't know how to do any better than that unless you, you I mean, just it, you, you can see actually where it's at. And that's the way it has to run. And these guys, you know, uh, that they, they don't do it that way. And uh, they'll tell you what you want to know. They'll tell you what you, they want you to know. And you can go right in there and see whatever you want to see. And, and that's the way it has to work. And he says down here that in verse 20, that no man should blame us in this abundance that is administered by us, providing honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And that's what you have to have. That's what you got to do. And if you got nothing to hide, then there's nothing to hide. What's the big deal? It's when you close them up and won't let people see it that, that you got some problems. And he ends with a great comment in verse 24. And he says, wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches, the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Paul was proud of this church. He was proud of where they had come from, what they had turned around in their midst, and he's proud of where they're going. Now today, I want to give you the third principle. And this is a great breakdown for this chapter. The third principle today is laid out in the first verse, verse 15. Here's what he says. As it is written, He that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. And that's another great principle. Now, this quotation is out of the book. If you don't have it already marked in your Bible, you want to mark it in. This quotation is found in Exodus chapter 16. This third principle will really bring us in our our last two points last week, it'll kind of bring it down to a central concept and a central theme. And it's a great breakdown of chapter 8. We've given you some great, valuable principles, uh, first week and the second week, that you should already have those down. Now, today we're going to see in the final analysis, it all comes down to this: you can have everything you want. You can and I can preach to you about all the different things that we talked about, but at the final analysis, at the end of the day, it simply comes down to your relationship. And this is where he's get what he's talking about, and I'll show you in a moment with your relationship with the Word of God. It's the bottom line. It's where it all begins and where it all ends. And the final principle is very simple. The final principle that pulls it all together is really simple. When it comes to God, when it comes to God, you can have as much of God as you want. There are no limits. God, when it comes to us, puts no limitations on himself uh, for his word. God never puts uh, uh, brackets or bounds on how much of him uh, that we can have. And, and that's a great concept. And I learned that very early in the ministry. And I think that, uh, I think that most pastors today are a sham when it comes to uh, what, what, what they really ought to be. You know, we get the idea, and this is a very damning thing, But we get the idea, and it's perpetuated from pulpits today by by these guys who think they know more about the Bible than you do or that they're, you know, somehow different than you are. They perpetuate the idea that God is untouchable. They perpetuate the idea that the Bible's untouchable. They'll tell you that you as a common man can never understand the Bible you got to come to this guy or this doctor who understands Greek and Hebrew, and he'll tell you what the Bible means. When they do that, what they have done in one fell swoop is they have removed the Bible from you and made it unassessable. And they do the same thing with God. They want you to believe that God is some untouchable, untainable person that you've got to work and struggle all your life to to really uh, get any kind of relationship with. And that's simply not true. That's simply not true. When I started pastoring, I saw the model that God gave to me and I said, you know what? That's the model I need to follow. A pastor needs to be accessible to his people. They got problems. They need to be able to get a hold of him. You don't get some answering machine that says we'll be in on Thursday. You get a live body when you need somebody. You ought to have the ability to spend an hour with your pastor, a week, a month, whatever it takes, whatever your needs, if you want to learn the Bible, because a pastor represents God. And what he preaches is God's word. And you can't have a pastor who represents God, who doesn't act like God when it comes to giving you all that you need. You don't come here because I'm good looking. You don't come here because you love me. You come here because of what I give you. And in actuality it has nothing to do with me. You may like me. We may have a relationship. Now you may have seen my heart. You may have my heart. But at the end of the day, You come here for one reason. It's because the book that God gives you, and you know that if you want it, you're going to get it here. I took New Year's Eve and spent, what, four or five months before uh, we ever did that night, laying out the complete Bible from one end to the other for three and a half, almost four hours. You know why I did that? Because that's what God did to me. God gave me that. My job is to give you that, and your job is to give somebody else that. That's how it works. This idea that pastors have today, you know, don't touch me. Stay away from me. I mean, most pastors, you know, if you need, you got a terrible problem in your world and you can't, you can't uh, uh, get any, you need help, you don't get them. You get some under hireling down there. You get some second stringer, or third stringer. You can't get to the man. The man ain't got time for you. I don't know what the man does, but he doesn't have time for you. I'm not sure who he's ministering or what he's ministering to, but he has no time for you. Hey, you are the most important thing in this church next to that book. And what your needs are in that book is my primary concern. My job is to make sure you get what you need. Your job is to do something with it after I get it to you. It's a two way street. And that's a great thing I learned very early in my ministry. I mean, uh, that's just the way it works. But the mindset today is pastors are untouchable. You know what? You're not going to spend, you, you come on Sunday morning and he'll bless you with all that he has. But you need something during the week or you want to sit down and really, you really uh, uh, want to ask him some questions. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. The real reason it'll never happen because he didn't know what to answer you. But that's beside the point. Now, this verse is a quotation from Exodus chapter 16, verse 18, verse 15 here. You don't know that already. And, uh, it, uh, you know, based on last week in verse 12, we now know that it's not what we have or what we don't have that really matters. But it's a willing heart. Now, and now that's another game pastors play. Pastors look at people in their congregation. If you don't know this, you're as stupid as a fence post. They look at you, these big-time guys, and all they look at is your wallet. They look at what you do for a living. They look at for what you're going to bring into them, what you're going to do for them. If you're just a common, ordinary, blue-collar worker in a big 5,000-person church or 3,000-person church, you'll probably never get to be a deacon. You never get, That's reserved for people with status. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked. Now you're going to realize that they, they cater based on what you have, I've never cared about what anybody had. I only look for one thing in a person. I don't care how much money you make, how much money you don't make. I don't care if you're broke, get on the street on your rear end and can't even get up. All I care about is one thing in your life, your will to do what God wants you to do. That's all I care about. That's all I care about. The abundance of getting all you want from God's word, there's no end to it. Now, I think in itself, I told you this is a quotation from the book of Exodus. We're going to go back to the book of Exodus. I want you to show you how Paul, how we developed this thing that Paul said. In one little verse, it's incredible. First message I heard after I got saved and right with God was a message. Uh, I went to church one night and uh, Dr. Peter Ruckman was preaching. First time I'd heard him. This had to be back in about 1972, maybe 71. <clears throat> And the first time that I heard him preach, I sat up there and, and, and listened to that old boy, and he preached a message that I've never forgotten. In fact, I still have it on cassette. I wouldn't dare play it. It'd probably break in pieces. But it's, he, he preached the gospel according to Exodus. Boy, I sat there that night and listened to that old boy, lay that thing out, draw that thing out, and put that thing down there. Boy, I have never forgot that sermon all of my life. A little bit later on, I got Arthur Pink's book on the gleanings in Exodus. Wow, did he do a job on the book of Exodus. After a while, I came to the place to realize how important the book of Exodus was. And the book of Exodus, to me, has uh, is, is always been, I call it, God's great, God's discipleship book. It's the only book I know that lays the format before you and I were saved, when we got saved, and every event that needs to be into our lives after we get saved. I've never seen another book like it in the Bible. And I know a few things about some of the books in the Bible, I think the name itself is an incredible book. It's called The Exodus. You know what The Exodus means? Exit. That's a great book. It's a book about somebody exiting one place to go someplace else. You know what? That's what I'm going to do. And the nation of Israel, uh, they exodus, they left. It's a great book. In fact, when I built my 10 discipleship lessons, what, probably 35 years ago, I built on that concept and that format that I found in Exodus. I figured, hey, how are you going to improve on God's discipleship? If these are the things that God wants us to know that he put in his book, I'm going to write my discipleship lessons around those things. And I followed that basic format. And it's an incredible format. In fact... When you start to look at it, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 talks about how that Israel is God's son. And by a strange coincidence, you and I are God's son. Now, they're God's son corporately. But you and I are God's son as part of his body and and, and his, and his children. Same concept. Different aspect, but same concept. And I started to come through there and I saw an outline that was absolutely invaluable in understanding the process. And I'm going to, I, I got to give you the outline to get you where Paul's at to make it all make sense. But when you started reading Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3, you know what you got? You got a picture of Israel down in Egypt. Egypt's the type of the world. They're under the bondage of Pharaoh. He's a type of the devil. And the devil wants to do one thing to the nation of Israel. He wants to destroy them. We learned that Thursday, uh, New Year's Eve. He wants to destroy them. He wants to wipe them out. So he puts them under hard bondage of labor of building the pyramids, his tomb, and all the other stuff. And for 430 years, they languished in the iron furnace of Egypt, and they died by the hundreds and the hundreds of thousands, and they die, and they build it, and they can't get out, and they're stuck. Somebody said, that's a picture of Egypt and Israel. No, no, that's a picture of where I was before God saved me. I was under the bondage of this old world, and my Pharaoh, the devil, wanted to destroy my life and everything about it. And I languished in this old world. I languished through the heartache of building those pyramids for the world. And now you know what happened? Well, in our story, I'll tell you what happened. In chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, they cry out. They say, oh, God, I can't take this no more. Oh, God, I need out of this. What am I going to do? My life's a mess. You know what God did in those chapters? He sent him a deliverer. That deliverer is Moses. Moses is one of the greatest types of Christ anywhere in the Bible. You know what God did when I cried out that day? He sent me a deliverer. Oh, it's a great book. Chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Oh, you know what happens in those chapters? The adversary shows up. Pharaoh says, I ain't letting them go. And there's a contest between between Moses and Pharaoh. Just like there was a contest between God and the devil over your soul. Sometime, we don't have time to do it this morning, but sometime you go through there. And you study those chapters, there's three things the devil tried to do, or Pharaoh tried to do, to keep them from going, to compromise them, but never get them to leave. And they're the exact same three things you'll do in people's lives today. Incredible. Incredible. Well, you know what happens in chapter 12. Oh, boy. Salvation by the blood of a lamb. The day Israel got redeemed. Forget that. The day Bob Alexander got redeemed. Oh yeah, I cried out and he was my deliverer. They had to read it sometime. That lamb has to be a male, the firstling of the flock, without blemish, just like Christ. It was killed by Israel, just like Christ, on the 14th day of the month, just like Christ. And they put the blood on the door. And when they put the blood on that door, it wasn't just one big bloody mess, it was Blood over here, blood over here, and blood at the top. There's one thief, there's the other thief, and there's Christ at the top. It's a picture of the day my deliverer got me out of Egypt. Oh, man. They said, when you take that lamb and you put it at the fire, don't put any water on that fire, and don't put any water. Touch that lamb. You know why? Because on the cross, he says, I thirst. thirst. Chapter 13, they come out. Chapter 13 is a great chapter on my sanctification. 13.1, 13.2 says, sanctify unto me all the people. First thing you need to know when you got saved, ladies and gentlemen, is you now have been separated from the world. You're going to see it in a moment. This is why Paul's making a reference to it. First thing that happened after you got your exit sign printed on your head as you entered Egypt, this world, you were now separated from the world, never to go back. Never to go back. Wow, chapter fourteen. Guess what's happened in chapter fourteen? Well, first Corinthians chapter ten, verse two says, When they crossed the Red Sea, that's where they got baptized. See, after you get saved, you need to get baptized. Chapter 15 talks about the new song. They call it the song of Moses. The new song that they now sing. But Psalm chapter 40, verse 1 and 2 talks about the song I sing where David said, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit. Yes, he did. Out of the miry clay, he certainly did. And set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he had put a new song in my mouth. Many shall see it and fear and trust in the Lord. There it is. Did he give you a new song? You should have picked it up on your way out. Chapter 16, my Bible. We'll talk about that in a minute. Chapter 17, my prayer life. That's where you get this concept that we talked about Thursday night that I brought up about 1 Timothy 2.8 about lifting up holy hands. I told you it had nothing to do with these hands. Back there, you got a picture of your prayer life. Everything's in the right order. And when you get to that point there in chapter 17, you got a picture of a battle that goes on. You got Amalek, who's an enemy of Israel, fighting with Israel. And you got Moses standing on top of the rock watching the battle. And he's praying for him. And the Bible says that when he he lifts his hands up to God, uh, the the, the battle goes their way. And when he gets tired and he drops his hands, the battle goes Amalek's way. And the Bible says when he got so weary that he couldn't hold his hands up, Aaron and Ur came over and helped his hands up. That's a picture when you're weary in your prayer life because of the battle you're fighting, you get your friends on your prayer group holding up your hands. That's right. Moses didn't fight the battle. Joshua fought the battle, a type of Christ. Your job and my job is to do the praying. Jesus does the fighting. Oh, Exodus is a great book. In fact, I may never read another book in the Bible again. I did spend my life reading that one. Chapter 18. He talks about the people you got to be careful of in your life after you get saved. This is a great story about Moses and Jethro. Jethro was Moses' his father-in-law. And all the preachers in the land will tell you that, and I've heard them teach this in, in Bible college. Pastors teach on this that this is the exact good advice that he gave to Moses and it was great advice and this is what a young preacher ought to follow. That was the most damning, heretical information Moses ever got. It was totally against God. It's a picture that once you get saved and God starts working with you through that book, you don't need some highbrow guy out there to tell you what the book means. It'll take care of itself. Great chapter. You've talked about it before on Thursday night. Chapter 19 through chapter 24. There he talks about the Old Testament law. He goes through it and you learn how the Old Testament law will affect you. In chapter chapter 25, 26, 27, he lays out the tabernacle. And now you find that it's a picture of your body and your life. There are seven pieces of furniture in that tabernacle that match up to the seven things we have to have in our life to have a relationship with God. It's incredible. See how it brings you through? Chapter 28 through chapter 31 is the priesthood. You're a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the book of Hebrews says. Chapter 32 through chapter 40 deals with the work of the ministry. Uh, nothing I know of, No other book in the Bible that I know of, lays out the right order with all the aspects of from before I was saved, the day I got saved, and puts every order of event exactly the way it's supposed to be. For every believer in this room today. Now, Paul, when he quotes this, he's quoting in Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse fifteen. He's quoting out of the section that we just kind of skipped over because I told you I was going to come back to it. Now, chapter sixteen, he 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 focuses on the Word of God, and the verse he's quoting there is sixteen, uh, chapter uh, eight, verses sixteen and uh, excuse me, in Exodus. I'm sorry, is chapter sixteen, verse seventeen. And the key to my will and my attitude of heart with God, as I've already told you, comes down simply to a book and what you're going to do with it. And I've already told you, the third principle here is, you know what? You can have as much of God as you want. How come there's people in this room? How come there's people in this room that have been saved the same as time or shorter times than other people and they know more about the Bible than you do and you've been saved three times longer? Why is that? And you find it in every church. You find it with any group of Christians. Now, I, I know there's some of you guys in here and some of you gals in here that probably know the Bible as good as I do. I'm happy for that. That's a great deal. But you know what? There's others in you who have been saved as long as I have or not longer. Why don't you know it is good or better than I do? Is it because, and I know what the answer is. Well, you know, I didn't have your, uh, I didn't have your training. I didn't have the people in my your life. I didn't have to, You know, all I really had in my life was God and my will to do what God wanted me to do. And then God got me what I needed. Didn't you hear last week? When you have a willing heart, God will get you the things and the people you need to give you what you want. Charles Jones. They used to call him Charles Tremendous Jones. He was a motivational speaker. Back in the 70s and the 80s, his big stick was going around motivating people to be better than they are. He used to say this, and I heard many, many pastors quote him, and I just kind of looked at him and laughed back of my mind when they said it. But Charles Tremendous Jones used to say that you will be exactly 10 years from now who you are today except for the books you read and the people you meet. And he was motivating people to broaden their intelligence, read books, meet people. And, I, and I've heard many, many pastors stand in the pulpit and quote that same thing because it was a kind of a buzzword at the time. But I'd sit back and I'd look at that and I, I'd say, now that's the secular side of it and that shows you how these pastors only think in a secular mindset. Let me tell you something. That's not true. Or maybe it's true of the world. But for a child of God, if you're here this morning, I will tell you this you will be exactly who you are 10 years from today as you are today, except for the book that you read and the people you minister to. There's the difference. And he wasn't a Christian. Now, I want you to follow. I want to help develop this concept i kind of give you the background here of Exodus, but I want to bring us back to this verse now, and I want to look at our third principle and how it all ties in. So come on back to Exodus, and if you don't have these in, this is a great time. I want to break down this chapter for you. I'll give you some things about how this is a chapter, a picture of the Word of God. It's great stuff. I stuff stuff in my Bible, been in there for 35 years, man. I'll never forget cracking old Arthur Pink's book on that thing. Boy, and I just stood back and was like eating strawberries on a summer afternoon. Well, Exodus chapter 16, verse 1 says this. It says, the children of Israel enter into the wilderness of sin. Now, the wilderness of sin, as we would look at it in the book of Exodus, is a picture of the desert. And they now are wandering for 40 years, and there's nothing in the desert that's going to sustain them. They can't find any good water. There's no good food to eat. No McDonald's. Nothing to place to go get any food. They're out there in a wilderness in the desert. And it's called the wilderness of sin. Now, the reason why he called it the wilderness of sin is because whether you know it or not, that's a picture once you get saved of what the world now is to you. And this is why he gave you the chapter on sanctification. Sanctification. This is why he called the book Exodus. Once you exit the world through a blood of the Lamb, folks, I'm telling you something. There ain't nothing on this planet that's going to satisfy you ever again in a physical sense. If you're truly saved. If you're truly saved. From this point on, nothing that they went anywhere they went, nothing in that desert sustained them. And once you get saved, there's nothing in this world, no matter what, who tells you what. Once you get saved, there's nothing this world has to offer that's going to sustain you. It will destroy you, but it'll never sustain you. To call the wilderness of sin. Nothing there that satisfies them. Nothing there that will give them no water, no food. Remember now, water is a type of the Word of God, and so is uh, uh, meat as a type of the Word of God. And what follows once they enter into the wilderness of sin is the greatest picture of connecting to your Bible. Going back to why Paul used this quotation. It's a picture of what God gives us to sustain us in our journey through the wilderness of sin. Now, I want you to see 14 things here. They're out in the wilderness out there. They got nothing to eat. They got no water. They got water out of a rock. That's another story. That rock's a type of Christ. But they got nothing to eat. And supernaturally, God gives them something called manna. And I want you to see these 14 things about the supernatural food that God gave them to sustain them in the wilderness journey. And I want you to apply it to your own life, that if you're truly saved and you made the exit sign of your life, brother, then nothing in this world is going to sustain you. And this is the difference why some of you will make it and some of you will not. I made a little statement a little earlier about we got 60 people for the people ministry. And we'll be down to 40 by the second round. You know why that is? Because I know what happens. I've been in this business for a while. Everybody's excited about getting to learn all of this stuff and do all this stuff. But to whom much is given, much is required. You'll suddenly, your work schedule will conflict, I guarantee you. You say, you don't even know where I work. Doesn't matter. Your kids will be sick for the next 10 years. Every first Saturday of the month. Now the first thing I want you to see is found in verse four. That this man that God brought down to them was a supernatural gift to them from God. And shows your Bible. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. When that manna came down, it was God feeding them supernaturally with the bread that he gave them. And when God gave you that Bible, once you made your exodus, God gave you the supernatural bread from God that's going to sustain you through your wilderness journey. You see, some of you guys out there and some of you gals out there that are out in the far country right now today, you think that's not true. You think that you can drink your booze, smoke what you want to do, do what you want to do, go where you want to do, keep one toe in Christianity and the other full 90% of your body in the world, and you think that you'll sustain yourself that way. Well, see, this is where the devil deceives you. It may work for the short term, but the long term, when you lose your marriage, you lose your kids, they won't come to church anymore, they want nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with the gospel, and you're sitting there with a big frog smile on your face saying, wonder what happened you've been deceived. It would be a lot easier if people would just listen to what preachers say, but my God, why would we ever do that? When he brought that supernatural food down to them, it was theirs. He gave it to them by God's design. It came, it came, it came from God to them. And that's the second thing I want you to see. And you find this in verse 13 and 14. Not only was it a supernatural gift from God, but I want you to see this. Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine. The man that came right to where the people were. The common people. He didn't send them to the priest. He didn't send them to the scribes. That... That manna came right to where the common, ordinary people was. It didn't go to the Gnostics. It didn't go to the Bible scholars. It went right to where the common people was. And they didn't have to search for it. Aren't you glad that you didn't have to rely on some dead, unsaved uh, linguist to find the Bible in some Vaticanist dusty manuscript closet someplace? Aren't you glad that the real will of God wasn't bound up in city Atticus monastery out there in the Sinai desert for 450 some years? Aren't you glad that it wasn't that way? Aren't you glad when the Dead Sea schools were found in 1947 and the scholastic world said, wow, what new light we'll have on the Bible? That Bible had been around for 1,900 years. Amen. Now I know that. Because he brought the manner right to where the people were. Right to the people. All they had to do was pick it up. It was supernaturally brought to them. There was no mistakes in it. No scribal errors. Exactly as God would have it to us. I'll tell you the third thing in verse 15. Boy, this is so true of all of us, true of me when I got first saved. Verse 15 says, when they got it, they didn't understand what it was or why it was here. That goes to show that when you first get saved, the word of God is a mystery to you to some degree. I've been in it for over 40 some years and it's still incomprehensible to me in many areas. I things I still don't understand about it. But it's just like anything else, you know. And, and I, I look at another great example in the Bible. And this is what our job is. You know, over there in Acts chapter 8, you have the story of that Ethiopian eunuch. And I've always marveled at that story. I've always thought that's one of the most greatest stories in the Bible. Because you got this little Ethiopian eunuch is out of Africa, and he's, he's in a chariot, and he's going to Jerusalem. And he's in a way station someplace. I don't know what he's doing, but he's sitting there and and God looked over here and sees that Ethiopian eunuch got a copy of, of Isaiah chapter 53, what he's got. And he watches that old boy read that thing on the back of that chariot. God looks around and he says, I need somebody to go be a missionary to him. And he looks down, and he sees Philip. I think there's a great principle in why he picked Philip. You know, Philip was in the midst of a revival of thousands of people. And God lifted up Philip and took him over to that one man? You know, I know evangelists that won't come to a church to preach unless you can guarantee him a crowd of five thousand people because he thinks his ministry is too valuable. Your ministry is never that valuable. You are never that valuable. Why God didn't need Philip then. You know what? Philip didn't even argue with God. He didn't say, well, Lord, you know, I got something going over here. Like well, we would do, well, I got, man, I just had 2,800 people saved last night. I don't, I, I got to get all their names down, you know, and get their tithing records and everything. You know, I mean, I can't get over there. He never said a word. He went right where God wanted him to go. And when he comes to that chariot, greatest line in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, of what our ministry really is. He sees that old Ethiopian eunuch sitting back there reading Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, by the way, is the crucifixion of Christ on the cross, the blood atonement. And Philip walks up and says, great opening line. Understandeth what thou readest? And that Ethiopian eunuch looked up him with the greatest words that heaven ever heard. How can I, except some man guide me? You see, people don't understand the Bible. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. You know what your job and my job is? Once you understand that it's giving of yourself first, that it's your attitude to the heart and the willing to minister, you know what your job really is first? You, first and foremost, my job is simply this. It's to find the guy sitting on the backs of chariots and then ask the question, do you understand what, they, what you're reading? And they say, how can I? So some man should guide me. And then you guide him. He won that boy into Christ. One that man to Christ. Credible. Your job and my job is to guide people because the word of God is hard for them to grasp. And your job and my job of us who understand it a little better? Guide those that don't. Gonna be a rough year for some of you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We are no longer waiting for you. The bus is leaving. And those of you who have been on mission trips with me know exactly what that means. Because <clears throat> I have left them before. Now, the, uh, the, uh, the next thing, fourth thing. Now we've got to turn back to the book of Numbers chapter 11 for this one. <clears throat> Because the fourth thing I want you to see is that not everybody was happy with the manna. In fact, the mixed multitude hated the manna. And we know now the manna is a type of the word of God. He says in, 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 in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4, let's pick it up. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, who shall give us flesh to eat? You see, that's what the mixed multitude always focuses on. You see that, don't you? You want to mark that word flesh. The mixed multitude's always concerned about their flesh. We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely. Now, that's an always interest been a statement to me freely. They beat your back with whips. They kicked you. They beat you. They ran over you with you with bricks. They did everything in the world. Your grandfather died in it. Your father died in it. Your grandmother died by being crushed. And they worked you 20 hours a day and gave you four hours off and then put you back to work again. They starved you to death. They didn't give you a squat to eat. And you look back at the world and think how free it was. That's the mixed multitude. That's why you still drink your booze. That's why you, 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 you still have one foot into the world. That's why you don't see the things of God as important. You've got, to, you've got the mixed multitude in your life. And then when something tragic happens in your life, you say, I wonder what happened to me with that. You need a brain transplant. Nah, no, you don't. You need a heart transplant. What you need? You're so stupid you can't even figure it out. Mixed multitude will screw you up every time, every place, everywhere. We remember the fish which we did in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. Well, I'll tell you what, the mixed multitude, when you eat what you eat, you get a great and grand case of gas. That's all they bring to the party. Look at their attitude toward the book. But now our soul was dried away, and there was nothing at all beside this manna before eyes. Oh, yeah, all you got is the Bible. Oh, what a terrible thing to go through life with. That's the mixed multitude. They didn't stand for it. They didn't like it. And they always, were a, they always were a problem for the nation of Israel. I've told you many, many times, when you get exodus, you exodus your old friends. And I don't care what church you're in. I don't care where it's at. You're going to have mixed multitude people in every church on this planet. My advice to you is to mark them, find out who they are, and stay away from them. The fifth thing, this will be verse 4 again. The manna was gathered daily. Then the Lord said, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather every day. You need to spend time in the book every day. I guarantee you, you feed, we feed our face three times a day, probably more than that for some of us. We don't miss our meal when we want to feed the flesh, do we? And we like what we like. We don't like this restaurant, but we like this one. We like this type of food, not this. Nothing wrong with that. We make sure we don't miss any meals when it comes to this old flesh. But boy, we can go weeks, days, months without ever eating the spiritual food that God provided for you. And then you wonder why you got problems. The sixth thing, verse 4 again, it was gathered in the morning. First thing they did when they got up was get into that book, get that manna, to get their daily strength for all they had to do. You know, I don't know if you know it or not, but the the most important meal you have in your life is breakfast. Breakfast is the most important meal of your day. And the reason for that is on a biblical plane is because if you know your Bible, you know that while men sleep, the Bible says that God uh, creates and you go back to Job chapter 33, you find how God structures your night while you sleep for the next day. And, uh, and you don't you notice know, you're not, you don't eat one you're during, during the night. Uh, you really shouldn't eat a lot before you go to bed. I know we all do, but you should try not to. Because uh, that time is so important in your Bible that uh, God does some things with us while we sleep at night. It's a time that your body gets as close to dying. And uh, it's a picture of you going to bed. It's a picture of dying. The Bible says you sleep. You know, you go to sleep over here and you wake up in the morning. Picture the second coming, all that stuff. But the bottom line is this. You go for eight or nine hours uh, and you don't eat. And then when you get up, you've been in a fast all night. And now your body is getting up and ready to go to work. And so what you've got to do is get some strength physically. And so what you do is you have breakfast. Or in other words, you break the fast. Breakfast. Breakfast. You ought to do the same thing spiritually. I'm not saying you got to read the whole Bible through in the morning before you go to work. But you ought to have some kind of, of, of spiritual indigestion of food inside of you. That you take in. In the morning, for this' the most important meal, not only physically, but it's the most important meal that you got spiritually, to break that fast physically and spiritually. for this the most important meal, not only physically, but it's the most important meal that you got spiritually, to break that fast physically and spiritually. Now the seventh one it was supernatural from God. God brought it right to where they were. It laid all around the ground in the morning, but it didn't fall in their mouth. They had the labor to get it. 1 Timothy 2.15 says, The study to show thyself approved unto God, a work when it needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You gotta work to get that book. Hey, look, I did New Year's Eve, I laid that whole thing out, I spent three and a half, almost four hours going through it. I got the stuff on DVD for you, I got the charts printed out for you, I got everything you need. But I'm not coming over and doing it for you. You have to labor to get it. That's a problem with 21st 20 and 21st century Christians. That's a problem. I see it all the time in Christians. There's a great story back there in 2 Kings chapter 4. Who was a poor lady. And she didn't have anything. She was a widow lady. Her bills were due. She had all kinds of people wanting money from her. She had nothing. And she meets up with Elisha. And Elisha sees her plight and her and her son. And he says, I'll tell you what. Listen to me. Go and get some Buckets. Get as many buckets as you can. In fact, the verse says, borrow not a few. In other words, if you don't have enough, borrow some. And when she came back with all them buckets, he started pouring out out of his bucket oil into these buckets. And as long as she put a bucket down, that bucket never ran out of oil. And she wound up, doesn't tell you, I don't think how many, she probably wound up with 200 gallons of oil. But the bottom line was this. If she would have brought 100,000 buckets, she would have got 100,000 buckets of oil. I'm telling you, when it comes to God, there's no shut-off spigot. You know what your problem is today? I'm going to tell you what your problem is. I'm going to tell you what your problem is. You ain't going to like it, but I'm going to tell you what your problem is. You come to church on Sunday morning, and you get 100,000 gallons, and you bring a pint bucket. I wonder why you got problems. Yeah. She could have as much as she wanted. And that oil is a type of the Holy Spirit of God. You can have as much of God as you want, as you can believe him for, as you're willing to bring in the buckets. Why, if that had been me, there wouldn't have been a bucket within 50 miles of that place. God will bring it to you. I'll lay it out for you. You got to labor to get it. It ain't going to just fall into your mouth. You know, and I feel bad about some of this sometimes because I think I I, I have a tough time with the balance of giving you what I think is probably more than I should because you just trample it and don't do anything with it. Bible says, cast not your pearls before swine. And very frankly, when it comes to the word of God, some of you are swine. I cast the pearls at a great word of God. What do you do? You blow it off like it's nothing. It's going to be a rough year, isn't it? But then I look at it on the other side. If only four or five of you, if two or three of you, shoot, if only one of you really gets it and do something, that's what my job is. My job is to put it out, not worry about who does what with anything. God will take care of that. And in the process, sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised. God's people do more with it than you expect them to do sometimes. But then some things also never change. I can give all the Bible you want. I can give you all the Bible you can stand. I can spend. Some of you say, I really like coming over and spend. I can sit down with you an hour every day for the next 45 years. But I can't make it work for you. I can dispense it. I can give it to you as God gave it to me. I can break down things that took me a lot longer to figure out so you don't have to spend the time and make it work for you. But I can't, I can't do it for you. You just can't. I mean, you're going to learn when you start to help people and work in the people ministry. You're going to learn some things, and I think it's going to be a good education for many of you. You're going to learn how that you can have all the answers, because many times when I see a scenario or a problem, I know what the answer is, and I know how easy it is to fix the problem. And people get the idea, you know, well, we just, you know, it's an easy way to fix it. I, I I don't know. I don't, there's never really, really, I mean, when I say easy, easy compared to the way it's probably going to go. But there's, there's, you can't undo something faster than you did it. I mean, it just takes some time. People are always looking for the fast track, you know. I mean, you say, well, you know, come to, the, come to our church because you really get the Bible. And that may be true, and I want you to come to this church, but there have been people coming to this church since we started that haven't grown one inch spiritually. So it's either something wrong with me or the church or there's you. And when people leave, it's always us. You know, well, I'm not going to that church anymore. You know, I'm mad at him. I'm mad at this. I'm mad at that. You know, and they wind up. they wind up not going to any church. So the problem wasn't me or the church or the Bible. The problem is they didn't really want to hear what they wanted to hear. So now they finally just use that as an excuse. People do it all the time. I told you last week, you know, I, I, all my life, I've had parents come up to me and say, well, my kid, you know, he really, you know, he really, you know, he's a, I'm having a problem with him. If you would put him with some good people and put some people around him or, or, you know, my husband, my, my kids, you know, they get, get some around some good couples. And I understand that concept. And I've done that many, many times, but I want to tell you something you got to have something to work with before you can... It works. I mean, the fact that I could take anybody and put 100 people around them, but if that person doesn't want to do what's right, it's wasting everybody's time. I mean, it isn't going to work. I've never learned how to change your heart. God has to do that. I can feed it and give you what you need after it gets changed, but I don't have the ability or the capacity, don't want it to be able to change your heart. That's what God has to do with you. And when you don't have that, you don't have anything. Now look at verse, the eighth one, verse 19. Here it tells you that they were to gather it in the morning. But they're only to gather enough for that particular day. And he tells them in verse 19, don't leave any of it till the morning. And some of them didn't listen, just like God's people never listened, and they kept it till the morning. And the Bible says it bred worms and it stunk. They used the word stank. And a great principle there is: what you get out of the Word of God is just good for today. Now I know we have promises to get us through tomorrow, but in spite of that, the Bible says, Boast not thyself with tomorrow." You're not promised tomorrow. When you get that book in the morning, you're getting what's going to get you through today. You know what a lot of God's people's problems are? They try to solve next week's problem with the grace that God gives them today. You don't have to worry about next week. If God will take care of you today, he'll take care of you when next week comes. What happens is we get worried about next week and we lose our focus on today. And that's a sign of immaturity. That's a sign of immaturity. Immaturity. A mature child of God will recognize that you got something coming down the road or something big over here, but you know what? You don't worry about it. You don't stay awake at night thinking about it. You realize that the same God that got you through yesterday and the last big problem is the same God that's going to get you through the other one as long as you're where you need to be with God. And that's a great concept. Try to solve next week's problems with today's grace. Now, the ninth thing, This is also in verse 4. And this is really why, one of the multiple reasons why God gave us the Bible. I mean, I could list off the reasons why God gave you the Bible, but in the text here, it's, it's one particular thing and you'll see it, even though there's many, many facets to it. They're to gather a certain rate every day. And yet he tells them that the getting of the word of God and the gathering of the word of God and the reason why God gave us the Bible is to prove them. Nothing proves you more who you are by what you do with your Bible. <laughs> Years ago, <laughs> I had—I was thinking about this today. Years ago, I, I had a, a guy come and preach for me. Uh, it wasn't here, and uh, uh, he was a good preacher too, by the way. And and uh, he didn't pull any, but he—he he didn't. It was all. Hundred mile an hour, to hair on fire with this guy, and he was a good preacher. And he was preaching on loving the book and, and staying away from people that, that that you know didn't love the book and how they'll mess you up. And he said, "Right now, he says, right now, he says, look at that person you're sitting to you next to him, and look at their Bible. If they don't have as many or more notes than you got in your Bible, you get up and move." <laughs> uh, nobody moved, thankfully. <laughs> But that's pretty good advice. (laughs) Because the Bible proves you. It shows you what you got. I I, I got a sneaking suspicion. I'm probably dead wrong on this. What if at the judgment seat of Christ, we talk about a lot, you get up there and you get up there and... uh, uh, and, uh, Lord, you're ready to stand there, you know, and give the Lord every your spiel and everything, you know. And you're going to look at everything. And God just comes down there and says, uh, and you're ready to go. And he walks over and says, let me see your Bible. Mm-hmm. On your way, bub. One time years ago. <laughs> this is funny, too. <laughs> this is how stupid I was <laughs> when I was younger. Not much smarter than I am now. But anyway. <laughs> We were having a Bible study, and I had just got my my wide margin, my first wide margin Bible. In fact, Barb got it me for my birthday. I still have it, and I was so proud of it. And, but I had just got it, and I was just I wasn't probably into this thing more than a couple of months. <laughs> and, and Mel Mel came to Bible study on Thursday night. You know, and I was always hanging out with Mel. And Mel Mel says, "Ah, man," he says. Oh, I gotta do Bibles tonight. I forgot my Bible. It's had all of his notes in it, you know, like, like mine does. And he said, I forgot my Bible. And here I am, little Bob Alexander. You know, I said, Here, Mel. You can use mine if you want. He took it, he go, This is what he did. He took it and it went. No, nope, won't work. <laughs> <laughs> You know, most people would have got broken or got downtrodden, or you know, thinking that you know, oh, you know, you get no, no, no. I didn't get my feelings hurt at all. It registered with me. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be helping me because <laughs> I had no notes in my Bible. <laughs> Seventh to of Christ is going to be interesting. Number ten. They were to gather enough for all of their family members too. Verse sixteen says, "Every man according to his eating, according to the number of your persons, take ye every man for that which ye are uh, in your tent." See, you don't just you don't just gather enough for yourself. You got to gather enough for your family. You got kids. You got to make sure they get fed. You know, the greatest example of this anywhere in the Bible, and I don't have time to get into this morning, is is, uh, is Proverbs chapter 31. I, I go back and think about little Gavin up here last week when he did his little letter to, in school to God. Somebody's, somebody's feeding him right. Be that age and, and have that concept of God. I guess somebody else was telling me that he was laying out the eternal security to somebody and just... <laughs> I mean, you see, you, see how smart they are when they're that age. That's what you got to do. I mean, my grandkids just drive me nuts, man. I mean, they get on their computers and they do. I can't figure the thing out. I got to have four or five people to help me. They're zipping them things up and down, one down the other. Just, it's just not my world. And they're smarter than you think they are. They were getting ready to go to Ohio, and they got they got a they got a guinea pig now. Mocha is his name. And uh, Mocha's I had to. Babysit Mocha while they were gone. You know, it's so a little Macy last week. Just how smart they are. She said, "Now, Grandpa," she says, "Are you going to take care of Mocha?" And I was playing with her. I said, "You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have Mocha for dinner one night on the grill." She says, "Oh, Grandpa, you can't do that." And I says, "Why not?" He says, "Got too many carbs in it." Oh. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) (laughs) oh man but you don't just gather enough for yourself you got to gather enough for your family well number 11 verse 31 here the manna that they gathered was to be eaten it wasn't just to carry around under your arm or to put on your living room coffee table it wasn't for show It was food that God supernaturally had given for our strength through the wilderness of sin. But before it could be used for strength, it had to be ingested in the body and taken in. You know, I don't know if you know it or not. I have another message I preach on the Christian survival, how that the Bible is a complete balanced diet. The Bible is likened to apples. The Bible is likened to milk. The Bible is likened to meat. The Bible is likened to honey. The Bible is likened to water. The Bible is likened to vegetables. The Bible is likened to bread. I've always wondered at Wonder Bread if somebody someplace that designed that wasn't a Christian because their slogan is it will build strong bodies 12 ways and the real Wonder Bread isn't the loaf you get there. The real Wonder Bread is the bread from heaven and it does build strong bodies 12 ways because there's 12 tribes of Israel and salvations of the Jew. But you have to eat it. The 12th thing The manna was preserved for future generations. Verse 33 and 34. I don't know if you know it or not, but that Ark of the Covenant had three things inside it. It had the manna, which at the end of this chapter they put in there and keep it up for a future generation. It has the Old Testament law that represents the nation of Israel. And then there's one other item that's in there, and that is Aaron's rod that budded back there. And Aaron's rod is a picture of the church. So in that Ark of the Covenant, which is a type of Christ, you have three things that are eternal. You have the manna, Word of God, Israel, and you have the church. And those three things are put into that Ark and preserved. And don't you tell me the Word of God is not preserved by God. Don't you tell me that the Bible I have in my hand is not without error, that Bible I got was preserved by God. It was inspired by God and preserved by God. And it was down through the line for me. Uh, it's the book that you know how I know it's, per, uh, it, it's preserved of God? Because it was written for another reason, to preserve you. Amen. You know how I know it's preserved of God to me perfectly? Because not only was it written to preserve you, but it's preserved your marriage and your family. You know how I know it's not only preserved perfectly for me, it was preserved for me to preserve me, but for your kids to preserve them. Yeah, that book's eternal, all right. Well, now we come to 13 and 14, and they kind of go together here. And it really set the stage for why, uh, you know, some of God's people are the way they are. The first thing I want you to see in verse 12 and 14 is the manna, this will be number 13, is the manna, when it did come supernaturally, it came while they slept. Bible says it rained down, I guess like snow, you know, and covered the ground, the camp all around them. And when I look at that, I always thought, you know what? The fact that it was supernaturally made of God, and the fact that it was brought to them by God right to where they were, and the fact that while they slept it all come down was around them, the accessibility of the Word of God, just like you have it in your lap today, brought upon a decision. Because the Word of God is to prove us. And in the morning when they get up and they pulled back that tent flap, they looked out there, and the manna, the Word of God was all around them. They had two choices. They can either pick it up, labor, and get what God had for them or trample it under their feet and go the way they want to go. And that's exactly what we do with the Word of God. The fact that God has given you the book, provided you that supernatural food, given you everything that he's given you, the accessibility of the Word of God puts you and me between a rock and a hard place. Tomorrow morning when you get up, you'll do one of two things. You'll take the man that God has provided for you or you'll walk through your day and trample it under your feet. It's as simple as that. Then the fourth thing, and this is the last thing, and this is where our principle that Paul's coming through, and he's quoting, and I saved it for last, but I want to set the whole theme of this thing so you can get it, in 2 Corinthians 8.15. Now found in, in verse sixteen seventeen of Exodus, here's what he says, and this is what Paul's quoting. And the children of Israel did so, and gathered some more, And some less. See the great truth behind the principle that Paul was teaching the church at Corinth is their attitude of giving of themselves first. It's real simple and it makes the point for all of that everything that he said. When it comes to the things of God, which we've talked about, when it comes to you learning the Bible, which we've talked much about, when it comes to doing the ministry, which we talk about all the time, when it comes to having the ability to work with people and help them through their issues, when it comes to building a relationship with God that works for you and everything you do in life, God puts no limitations on it. You can have as much as you want on you, not your circumstances, not your marriage, not your husband, not your wife, not your this, not your job. It's your choice. Some gathered more, some less. It simply comes down to your decision based on your free will of choosing and an attitude of heart in giving of yourself based on his giving to you based on you knowing the grace that God has given us, what he gave up for you and for me. And in the truth, he provides for you in your journey through our own wilderness, coming to that place in our lives where we give complete control of our will over to God's will. Verse 15 says, as it is written, he that had, he that had gathered much had nothing over and he that had gathered little had no luck. And the great principle is every man had exactly what he needed to survive. God has for you everything you need to make you everything he wants you to be. I hear all the time people talking about, well, you understand this or you stand out. People are always blaming their problems on somebody else. That is the standard SOP that you have in everything that you do. When you get caught in something or your kid get caught in something, it's, well, look what everybody else is doing. You know, well, so and so's doing this. Who cares if the whole world is doing whatever? We're to do what the Bible says is right. It's our choice. The way we get around that is by blaming it on our circumstances, blaming it on our situation. Well, you don't know my situation. Oh, I know it better than you do. I do know it. And I know this. He that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. Every man according to what he needed with his family. Some just took for two, some took for four, some took for eight. But whatever the situation was, they got exactly what they needed to survive through their wilderness journey. The greatest concept of ministry is our giving. Giving ourselves first through giving to others. We as God's people recognizing that God has given us and then out of the abundance, God has given us to help other Christians. You can have as much of God as you want. You can have as much of that Bible as you want. It's letting God use you by a voluntary basis, based on the sincerity of your love for God, on your free will. It's letting God use you to be a blessing to others. And some of it is just so simple. Thursday. I closed with this. Thursday, I, I went out to get some lunch, for, and I went to Panera, and I was at, at the Crossroads Mall out there. And I was sitting in there eating, and uh, in fact, Joe called me on the phone. I was talking to Joe for a few minutes, and I was sitting there eating. The place was crazy busy, and I wasn't really paying much attention. And I, I felt somebody on my shoulder, and I looked up, and here was a lady that I hadn't seen for probably 30 years. I, I don't remember her name. Yeah, you probably would know her. I don't remember her name. I, and, I, and she didn't care that I didn't know her name. It wasn't like, you know, sometimes you're in those situations, you're stumbling, they kind of wait for you to see if you know the name. She didn't do that. She walked over and she looked at me. and She says, Bob, she says, I saw you come in and I saw you eat. And she was over with one of her lady friends over there. And I said, you know what, Bob? She said, put her hand on my shoulder. She's reading down. She says, 25 years ago, you told me the gospel and I accepted Christ as my own personal savior. And she said, this is nothing compared to what you gave me. But I went over and bought you a chocolate chip cookie and I want you to have it today. Thank you for what you did for me. Now, that chocolate chip cookie probably cost her, what, a buck and a half? In fact, I think they got a deal if you get one for a buck if you get your food there. It was worth a million dollars to me. I looked at it, didn't want to eat it. In fact, when I did finally eat it, I broke it in six pieces so I could enjoy it six times thinking about it. Didn't take, so, you know, my point is this. Sometimes it doesn't take much to be a blessing to somebody. Sometimes it really doesn't take much to be something to somebody. But the job of you and me is to let God to use us to be blessings to other people. A lot of people have marital issues. They have personal problems. They have a problem with their children. They have this. Some kids have situations. Our job is to be a blessing to those people, to help them. Sometimes you have to deal with it in a hard way. But that's still what we're supposed to do. So the third and great principle, after everything that he said, comes back to that book in your lap on one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, on one of the greatest books in the Bible to show you every aspect of your Christian life. And it simply goes down to this. Leave here today knowing, without any doubt in your mind, you can have as much of God as you want. You can have as much of that book as you want. You can know as much about it as you're willing to invest your life and let God show it to you. Because that book was given at the end of the day to prove us. Prove who does, prove who doesn't. It's that simple. Next week when we come here, I think you're gonna really enjoy some of the things that we're gonna do this next year. And it's gonna be a, a great Sunday. So come praying. And uh, we'll have your DVDs back there if you pick what people want to pick them up. Let's have a word of prayer. I'll give you about five minutes and then we'll we'll call the restart people up and, and we'll get everything organized and ready to go. Let's pray.